everybody. Welcome to the 83rd episode of the Manor Podcast. I'm your co-host, Roger Boney, joined as always with my best friend and other co-host, Michael Hamilton. Michael, do you remember what it was like when you first experienced the magical game of Flesh and Blood? What's, what's your earliest memory you have of the game at this point? I, I've told this story many times, but we you brought over these uh, Monarch starter decks, and we played Prism versus Leviathan. And Prism is a hero that attacks with a lot of powerful cards that say if your opponent blocks something with six or more power, then it cancels the whole attack, basically. It pops it. It has Phantasm and goes away. And Leviathan is a deck that says, most of my cards have six attack because that's I'm a brute, and that's what brutes do in this game. And we played mm-hmm. that game, and I was like, this game sucks. I don't like it. Let's try the other decks. Maybe it'll get a little better. <laughs> so then... We deal out chain. I get to play chain, and you're playing this guy named Bolton. I, you know, a thing or two about yeah, that. I've never heard of him before. And about two turns into the game, I'm banishing two cards with my my soul shackles, and I look, and this one says it has blood debt, and I can play it from the banish zone. And I'm like, huh, that seems really good. I just get extra cards, and then we finish that game out, and I remember thinking this chain guy is really broken. That was very clear, <laughs> yes. But that's part of the fun sometimes, seeing the broken yeah, things. Yeah, it was fun. I don't remember if it was the next session, but I remember we got a, a box of Monarch and you pulled a cold foil footsteps and you were like, oh my God. Or was it Rainbow Foil? I remember, but it was like it, it was like a $200 card. You're like, I can't, I can't touch this card. I, I don't feel comfortable holding a $200 piece of cardboard. I was like, Michael, just put it in a sleeve. It's fine. Thank you. Thank you for pulling my 200 piece of I think I think it was a few sessions later, because after we did the starter decks, I think we went to Welcome to Race Sealed and played Welcome to Race Sealed for a little while. And then we're like, let's try this Monarch Sealed. That's right. And then I think it was a library that I opened that I was freaking out about, because I had heard of these Fable cards, but I'd never actually seen one. I thought the Fable you opened was... I thought you opened the Footsteps, and the Fable you opened was the Cold Foil uh, Corsham. Oh, it was a Corsham. That was like... Yeah, yeah, because I I don't have a cold like because we only did first edition at that point, and I don't I I've never owned a cold foil library. So if you have or open a cold foil library, I would still have it. But I I did sell the cold foil Corsham because uh Corsham is not very good, but (laughs) I do still have a rainbow foil library around here, which is good because Prism plays that card. Yeah, back when you sold it, I think you got like several hundred dollars for the Corsham. Mm-hmm, no, mm-hmm. I don't think it's worth because people it didn't much. know it sucked yet, and I was like, hmm. <laughs> "But anyways, this episode is going to be all about how to transition from Magic the Gathering to Flesh and Blood, and take the journey just like world former world champion, washed up world champion Michael <laughs> Hamilton wow. did all those years ago. Uh, maybe one of your Magic the Gathering former friends." Or maybe you have a coworker who plays Magic the Gathering. You could just send them this video and we can help ease them into the game, take some baby steps, t- tell them what's going to be something that they're going to like, that's going to be like Magic the Gathering, what's going to be different, what skill sets carry over, and why ultimately Flesh and Blood is worth their time. So are you ready to get started in convincing some people to try this great game, Michael? Yeah, that is a great game. I'm ready to dive in. Okay. First on my list, I have, I have some similarities and I have some differences. First, top of the list, I have fun, exclamation point. 
that's a very very simple um i would say that both games are fun i think i think depends on how you feel about magic now but i think most people that have played magic for long enough that they're a magic player that's transitioning to flesh and blood or looking to pick up another game they they probably at least at one point thought magic was a very fun game because i know for a long time i thought magic was fun then i have some times where i play it i'm like i hate this game but i've gone back to it several times and definitely have would say that most of the time playing magic i enjoyed magic and thought it was fun yeah same i don't think i could dedicate that much time to it and make it like a cornerstone of my lifestyle and personality without it having been some amount of fun uh so yeah and i think to be fair there is still a lot of fun to be had overall in magic i just don't think there's a lot of competitive or there's not as much competitive fun as there used to be all the fun I guess this is later on down on my list is kind of transitioned to commander more and more. It seems like has been the focus where that's obviously the most popular way to play uh, Magic the Gathering. And it's really transitioned to more of like the social play uh, friendly experience instead of kind of the competitive fun that, you know, grinders like Michael and I are, you know, competitively minded people like. Yeah. Though, they have started doing competitive EDH tournaments that are, they do like four player pods that yeah, you, Canadian EDH, CEDH, I think competitive. The, it's just competitive, competitive EDH. Oh, okay. That's what C stands for. And there's like points or whatever. Cause I know there's no technical ban list or whatever. You, so you could put black Lotus or whatever in your deck, but it takes up like all of your points in the deck and then you're only playing with like commons. Right. I, I don't think that's accurate to how the tournaments are run now. I think there is a ban list, oh. but I, I, admittedly have not been super interested in them i just know that on my twitter recently there's been some drama about someone lying in the finals of a competitive edh tournament to get people to do other things and then he's like actually i'm gonna kill you now because you didn't counter my silence i believe is the story yeah i remember somebody's and then the community is like oh you're lying and it's just like and then there's the bluffing and poker and it's like i don't know this this is why i guess like if i'm playing a game of like flesh and blood or something though what would be like an equivalent be like oh uh you should attack me because i won't block it and then you attack me and then i block it like that'd be fine right it's something like it's it's different because in a multiplayer game there's always politics where it's not like a one-on-one game in a multiplayer free-for-all at least there's always those politics where like if you look at a game like risk where people are like yeah, I, I won't attack you if you don't attack me this turn. And then sometimes they just turn around and attack you anyway. Then like, well, why aren't you just in that, Australia? Is that is that no, part of the game? Nobody can attack you anymore. You win. And <laughs> <stop>. <laughs> the optimal strategy to winning risk is now what we're here to talk about. <laughs> I can fight you about Australia being the best plan. You, you but... couldn't get in to fight me. It's, I already won <laughs> Australia. <laughs> stop. <laughs> um, and I think like when you get into multiplayer politics games like that, you have to really decide what is fair game and what is not. And it doesn't seem like the community has really decided on whether telling someone that you won't win the game if they don't counter your silence is fair game. If you're going to win the game, if they don't counter your silence or not. And that's probably why there's a lot of uproar about it. But yeah. And you know what that story also just reminded me of is the next point on the similarities (laughs) These games are complicated. <laughs> There's a lot of moving pieces 
in these games, there's a lot of nuance to how a particular card can perform, where sometimes it's just, you know, a mopey old grizzly bear or a wounded blow or wounded bull. And then sometimes it's a tournament champion card or the all-star of your, you know, bear deck. So I don't know, like, it's just like really complicated and multifaceted rule sets that are also underpinning these games between like priority window systems and layers like in order to like you don't need to know all this stuff obviously in order to like have like a baseline fun engagement with the game but it's there in both of these games for sure yeah there's definitely you can definitely pick up the games both fairly reasonably after like an hour of learning how the rules work and playing a tutorial game, you'll have a pretty good idea of how the rule set works for either game, but there's always going to be weird interactions between cards and, and different phases of the game and when you can play things. And that definitely is a level of complicatedness complication that you don't have to have all the answers for, to be able to play it, play either game at a competitive level. And this is I'm going to jump to your next point, if that's OK. Go for it. If you if you're in a tournament for either game, there's wonderful judges that are always going to be there to answer the questions for you. Yeah, absolutely. So the tournaments can't exist in either game without the support of amazing people in the judging community to help be the engine. The chugga chugga choo choo. Shout out to Austin. Dad is making a train noise for you. Uh <laughs> that makes the tournaments go because at the end of the day, players are going to have disagreements to these complicated rule sets and say, well, no, you shouldn't be able to uh, get go again after attacking my aura. And somebody will be like, no, your attacking attack wasn't attacking. Clearly the judge will back me up on this. And then the judge will come over and be like, yes, this is how Spectre works. Uh, please, you don't get go again. And <laughs> that you need judges to clarify rules like that. Yeah. And I do think, if you've had much experience in the magic tournament scene, like playing like grand prix or I don't think they have grand prix anymore, but like big tournaments with like judge teams and stuff. When you come to flesh and blood, the system, the way the judge system works is very, very similar. You just call a judge when you have questions, they'll answer the questions they'll give you time extensions and stuff like that. It's almost copy pasted for magic, honestly, in terms of how the judges work. And there's a lot of judges that, I recognized from when I was playing magic that I came over and started playing flesh blood. I'm like, Oh, you were, you were a judge that answered my magic questions before I knew you from magic. And yeah, very, very similar. Yeah. And ultimately I, I, this was one of the motivations for me getting into law school. And, you know, if you're a competitive or just capable of playing flesh and blood or match the gathering well, or even just understanding it, that should really be a vote of confidence for you to be, or, a vote of confidence for your just overall intelligence and your capabilities in life to do other things. Because I often say, if I'm able to memorize pick orders and still remember like cons of Tarkir or Amonkhet pick orders for the different colors in drafting, or how layering with uh, Humble and Blood Moon and Back to Basics all works, I can go to law school. And <laughs> so just. <laughs> If this complicatedness in learning these rule sets, I think can apply to just other areas of life in general. So I think there's just a lot of value in these games overall. Yeah. And I guess just to continue your point, there's just a lot of things you just memorize from playing the card games. Like I probably know over a, 
like thousands of magic cards and I can tell you what over a thousand magic cards do. And if you could memorize the same thing with Lush and Blood, but if you just are able to memorize that many things, you could probably memorize the things you need to know for law school too. You know what, as a game that doesn't really carry over from Magic the Gathering to Flesh and Blood, though. I used to play this game a lot in car rides in when I was like grinding from Magic the Gathering tournaments. It was the converted mana cost game. So it would just be like blue-blue. Uh, and then so I would start with Counterspell. And then, then the next person in the car would have to go, okay, Boomerang. And then the next person would have to go... Um, mana Drain. Yeah, and so you would just keep going. And then you could do X blue-blue because that still counts as the blue-blue stuff. So Brain Geyser? Or no, I lose because that's xx blue so then i'd be out and so but you can't just be like the mana cost game or the resource cost game in flesh and blood three you'd be there all you'd be there forever <laughs> yeah yeah flesh and blood cards they don't have uh color requirements they have instead they have class and talent requirements where your hero has to be that class or that talent instead to play the card of the deck and then they have a resource cost on top of that but it's just like generic resources there aren't like blade themed resources or blade resources or fire resources it's just resources yeah so i guess we can get into some of the differences then and i don't have this first but i'm gonna go down the list a little bit but it's basically uh the overall game engine is much different in flesh and blood when compared to magic the gathering because in magic the gathering you draw your seven cards and you're only drawing one card a turn from there on your opening turn and you basically have a fixed amount of total resources that you're going to have over the game and you're going to be building up you're going to making land drops playing creatures casting spells and just implementing your strategy where you're getting stronger over time in flesh and blood it's actually the exact opposite and that's what makes it one of the more interesting card games out there at all. You're starting at peak power. You're starting at, uh, in Flesh and Blood, you get equipment and all of your equipment. Uh, you'll use it to vary effects. You'll destroy your equipment, take it away. It's basically like starting the game in like a very complicated state of commanda, c- commander. Uh, com- my Brooklyn accent coming out all of a sudden. Uh, commander. And you have to know like what all these activated uh, abilities are for all these permanents that are all over the battlefield. And you have to know like you can use your life total as a resource. And then in Flesh and Blood, you're also drawing four cards a turn every turn, uh, for, as long as you have four intellect. But don't worry about that part for now. Uh, so that basically makes the cards a lot more fluid and dynamic as opposed to Magic the Gathering. So the gameplay is just a lot faster and you're just really like getting worn down over time. Yeah, and one thing about Flesh and Blood is it's not like every game isn't like one puzzle. Every game is a bunch of mini puzzles because you draw your hand and you're like, what is the best way I can use this hand to get the most value out of it while also progressing towards whatever my game plan is? And magic you kind of draw your opening hand and that's like your opening hands most of your game plan right there you're a lot of games they end on turn four turn five you already have more than half the cards you're going to see over the course of the game in your opening hand and even like longer games are usually over by turn seven or turn eight unless you're just like playing some really really slow control deck which i don't even know if that exists anymore in magic (laughs) yeah i think i think you might be able to play some blue control decks or uh the top control in modern maybe but (laughs) Lantern, that's what it's called. Lantern control hasn't existed in modern in like forever, right? I I don't I don't know. I'm out of the loop. I forgot lantern control even existed until you brought it back now. 
Oh, geez. Yeah, I... So, uh, Flesh and Blood games generally go longer than four or five turns, though. So I've, I've, we've had some games that end on turn three. They're not very common, but they've happened. More in limited than constructed because you start with half the life total in limited compared to constructed. But yeah, games can definitely end turn four or turn five, but you're seeing four new cards each of this turn. So you're getting several mini puzzles to solve on each of them, basically. Yeah. And then I guess off of that note then is what's the most common frustrating way you can lose games in Match of the Gathering, which is land screw. You draw your opening seven cards. Oh, no lands. Got a mulligan. Oh, still no lands. Oh, got a mulligan. Oh, all lands. Got a mulligan. Oh, I'll keep a two lander. I'm sure I'll draw a third land by turn six. You never draw that third <laughs> land. You lose the game on the spot. Doesn't happen in Flash and Blood. Don't worry. You always at least have a game that's like engaging and you're making decisions in at least. Yeah, every card in your deck basically has three functions. Some cards can't do one of the functions, but almost every card in Flesh and Blood can do all three of these functions. And those functions are uh, pitch it to use as resources and cards based on their color pitch for different amounts of resources. There's red cards that only pitch for one and blue cards that pitch for three and yellow cards in the middle that pitch for two. Usually red cards are a little stronger when you play them and blue cards are a little weaker than when you play them because they give you more resources. Not always the case, but generally that's the case. Um, Of course, you can play them, which is the main function of cards in your deck. You play it out, it does some effect or attacks your opponent for some amount of damage, or you can use them to block. And almost every card has a block value. And when your opponent plays their cards that attack you, called attack actions, then you can just set your block or your cards in front of them to block and block damage based on the block value. So they're very flexible if you draw cards that synergize really well together to attack together maybe you just say i'm not going to block with any of my cards i'm going to use all these cards to attack with because they play really well together maybe you draw a blue and an attack that costs two resources and another card that costs one resource that combos with the attack really well Um, and if you draw a hand that doesn't combine very well maybe you block with a couple of cards because if you draw four reds and you have some of your reds cost a lot of resources to attack with, you can't. You probably can't use your hand super effect- efficiently on offense, but you can just use it on defense instead to block out their attacks. And then the last thing that kind of synergizes or ties it all together is you have this arsenal zone, which is a spot that you can just put one card at the end of your turn face down. And as long as your arsenal, as long as you have a card in your arsenal, you can play it from your arsenal. So it kind of gives you access to a fifth card. Yeah, absolutely. And... It's crazy because you say those things and I'm like, well, what about New Horizons, Michael Hamilton? You can have two arsenal zones. And what if you have a block card in your arsenal? You can't play that. And these are all very technical things. If you're just getting to the game, don't worry about them. You'll figure that out in time. But yeah, for what Michael just said is is largely heuristically true. Yeah, I, I think it's similar to like, in Magic, I, if I say you can only play one land a turn, yes, that's true, but maybe you have Oracle of Moldia or Exploration in your deck that lets you play an extra land each turn. Look or at you go, Michael. You play, uh, I think it's Summer Bloom, lets you play three extra lands, and that's just crazy. Yeah, that card's banned in Modern. Yeah, so <laughs> there there are definitely ways that you can break the rules through the mechanics of the game. Like, not cheating, breaking the rules. Like, your cards <laughs> alter the rules, basically. <laughs> but those rules generally hold true. Sure. Um, my next point that I want to get to though is going to be a little bit of uh, not drag on flesh and blood, but one of the things that is 
I think a little bit worse about the game, just so you know, we're being honest, right? We're not, we're not doing all sunshine and rainbows over here. It's not just like a strictly better game. And if you play magic, it's dumb and there's no value to it. That's not the point we're trying to make. So I'm going to be completely honest here, but limited. And I guess as an extension, deck building as a whole doesn't feel as rewarding in flesh and blood as it does in magic, the gathering, just because in flesh and blood, there's this class system. So if you're a warrior, you can't have wizard cards in your deck. You can't just be like a warrior, splash a little wizard, splash a little guardian, boom. I'm a wizard guardian warrior. It's like, no, you can only put warrior cards in your deck or generic cards in your deck. If they're split, you can put warrior guardian cards if they're the dual class cards, but you couldn't just put a card that's strictly only a different class into your deck. And basically that makes deck building really restrictive where if you look at Magic the Gathering, you can play a single color deck, you can play two color deck, three color deck, four color deck, five color deck, no color deck. You can like, there's all these different options of what you want to do in Magic Gathering. And it just kind of leads to a more expressive and dynamic gameplay. And that really, I think, carries over and focus. I, I think that you feel it the most in uh, limited play where you're opening up in sealed like this pool of resources and you're like oh man i have all these good class cards in here but i can't splash a couple of cards i can't like dual class a little bit and uh in draft you know you're it's not like oh i opened up this bomb in another class in pack three maybe i can splash it no you just have to pass it to your opponent and give them that bomb because you just need you can't take it Oh, you, you can take it. You can hate trapped it, which sure. is something that I think is actually way too popular in flesh and blood. I think people think hate drafting matters way more than it does, but that's a whole nother conversation. <laughs> I, I do agree that drafting and magic has something very unique to it that even other games that have limited systems that I think don't have some of the restrictions that flesh and blood has haven't had as good of limited systems. Like I've, I've played a lot of limited and different card games and magic has something really cool where you can pick cards of any color, but you're going to have to pay the cost. If you want to include them in your deck, you're going to have to splash them. And that sometimes the way that paying that cost plays out, just like not drawing your, your red source to play the two red cards that you're splashing in your hand can be really frustrating. But I think in terms of the draft process and the deck building process, it leads to really, really interesting decisions. Like how much risk is it worth to take these cards that are just slightly more powerful than the alternatives I could play without splashing. And there's always like a line where yes, it's worth it to take the risk on. And then some cards are more splashable than others. Like a red card that costs six mana and has a single red pip is much more splashable than a red two drop. That's maybe a bomb two drop, but you only, it's only really a bomb if you play it on turn two. So that's a huge part of magic drafting and magic limited in general that flesh and blood really misses out on where generally by the end of pack one, you know what class you are and every card that doesn't, that says a class that is not yours on it. So if you're a warrior, a lot of the draft formats have three classes, sometimes four, sometimes two, but usually three classes now. And most, a lot of the cards will just say a class that is a class that you know, you are not, and might as well be blank text. And, that happens some in Magic where you're like a blue-green deck and you see the red, black, and white ca cards are all probably not in the deck. But maybe you see a really strong uh, card of one of those colors and you're like, it is worth splashing this. Or you pick up a land that is like a, a red-white land in case you end up seeing a white card that you really want later. And that's just, all that is not a part of Flesh and Blood Limited. And I think that does lead to the deck building and the drafting process being 
reasonably less exciting. Yeah. And we, to be fair, I, I said in limited, but I, I think this carries over to constructive play as well, where there's not a lot of divergent like, strategies in classes where even if you're playing like there's three guardians right now, legal and classic instructed with Betsy, Victor, and Bravo. And even though their hero abilities and their cards in the deck are a little different, overall, I feel like the cards you want to put in the decks are going to be very similar largely between the three. And you can get some nuances in the gameplay, but it's not as different between playing a blue, even like a blue white control deck versus like a blue white, like, um, hexproof deck with ores and things like that that's really aggressively slanted where the, that's the exact same color pairing in those in those two examples in the decks and the decks play radically different game plans there's no like super aggro low to the ground fast punch you guardian versus slow controly like go forever guardian there's there's like mid-range guardian that's like kind of doing it a little bit versus slow controly but that's not just as different i guess between like your options and matches gathering a lot of the time yeah, I think a lot of deck building in Flesh and Blood really comes down is really more about tuning decks rather than building whole new concepts. It's really rare that someone's just like, here's a brand new concept for a deck. Where that happens all the time in Magic. You see a new set, you're like, this is a whole new, a whole new deck idea. Whereas Flesh and Blood, like a lot of the time, because your heroes are so based on their class cards, their equipment, like it's generally pretty obvious what the powerful cards are. And most people are like, Well, I want to build with these cards in my deck. And then like you get to the point where a deck that feels really different from someone else's deck is actually just like 20 to 30 cards off and two thirds of the deck is the same cards. And that's just because so many of the cards are just, yeah, you're going to put this in your deck. They're probably just what the, like, like your hero is synergizing with them and the card pool that each hero has is very limited. You can't just be like, yeah, I'm playing Victor, but I want to splash green in my Victor deck. <laughs> like yeah. that's not a thing. You're just, you're just the Victor deck if you're playing Victor. Yeah. Oh, well. But the overall, the gameplay is still really fun in Flesh and Blood, and it's really going to come down to, as a player, what do you enjoy more? If you really like that exploration and coming up with cool, unique, you know, independent ideas, even if they're not tier one or super meta, you'll probably find a lot more of that in Match the Gathering. But if you're just looking for a really clean, crisp, fun, dynamic gameplay where you always feel like you're making decisions and playing a game, Flesh and Blood, I think, still knocks Match the Gathering out of the water in that regard yeah I, I always remember in magic my favorite part of limited was always the drafting process it was so fun to draft these cool decks and then a lot of the time with magic arena especially where you could draft a deck and then you could just like play the games whenever you wanted or even when these came out on magic online i would a lot of the time i would draft the deck i'd play one game with it or two games with it i'd be like all right i'm gonna go do something else then i come back and be like oh i have to play the rest of the games not and i don't just get a draft again but i think flesh and blood the gameplay in my opinion, is so good that like, even though the drafting and the deck building leaves a little bit to desire, I think to be desired, I think the gameplay more than makes up for it. Agreed. Agreed. And I guess we can talk about, I guess, the casual side of it. It's not really something you and I engage with a lot. Uh, I don't think, have you ever played a game of Ultimate Pit Fight, Michael? No. Have you ever played a game of Commander? Um, it is single digit, the number of commander games I've played in my life, but yes, I have. Okay. Well, there you go. So 
And Magic <laughs> Gathering, the you know four-player format, it could be more than four players, but the popular social play gameplay with multiple people is called Commander. And in Flesh and Blood, they have something called uh, Ultimate Pit Fight, where basically you're sitting down with yourself and then three other people who pick heroes and you can attack the person to that's uh on your left or right or like in front of you and on your left or however you set up your pod or whatever and it is played and there are some people out there who are upf truthers but it is nowhere nearly as supported as the competitive side of flesh and blood right now whereas in match the gathering i think we said earlier it basically feels like commander the game most of the time now where there's just so much emphasis emphasis on the social play element and the multiple the multiplayer element on it because i shouldn't say social play because flesh and blood is called flesh and blood is because the creator of the game james white wanted people to get together in the flesh and blood to experience the great game uh, the common language of playing great games. Um, and so that social element is baked into the very foundation of flesh and blood for getting people together and be social. So I think it's a little unfair to say magic, I guess, is the more social game. But yeah, I guess that's a little bit of a tangent. Yeah, that is a little bit of a tangent. I do think jumping back to your ultimate pit fight versus commander, I think just the way that flesh and blood is like the way the game works that you start at your highest strength and you just like get worn down after a fight when you're fighting against three different people and two of them can just attack you when they want it doesn't feel like as satisfying to like barely hang on or scrape by as it does in a 1v1 match where your opponent's just like sending everything at you and you're trying to barely like survive and finish them off before they take you down in a in a free-for-all it's just like doesn't really have that whereas magic has this kind of like you I don't want to say unique, just like it's not what Flesh and Blood's built around where you're just like building things up. And most of Magic and Commander, everyone's building their own thing up. And like you can interact with each other. You can try to slow them down. If someone's going to get too far ahead, you can spend some cards to slow them down. But usually like you're focusing on doing your own combo and doing something pretty proactive and building something. And Flesh and Blood's more about like fighting and taking your opponents down. Yeah, absolutely. So... And I think just at the core of it then as well, you know, you, you touched on it with building up in uh, Magic the Gathering, where it's very easy when you start a game of uh, Ultimate Pit Fight to just kind of identify like, okay, well, you have way better equipment than every, you, everybody else at the table. Like, what's going on here? Let's just gang up on you first. And it just kind of leads, since the, the power discrepancies are kind of noticeable right from the start, and flesh and blood. I think that is also one of the more challenging aspects to like balance a, a multiplayer element to it. Yeah, I, I'm still really looking forward to them making their PVE mode where like you group up with a bunch of friends and fight some encounters. I think flesh and blood is designed like it, it would be a good RPG type of game where you group up against one boss or one big enemy rather than just everyone fighting each other. That's just, I feel like free for alls in games generally aren't my jam anyway so something that was like a pv experience would be cool to do that though they would have to make some kind of like dungeons and dragons experience and you know who's the company between behind both dungeons and dragons and magic gathering is wizards of the coast michael and oh boy let's get into the differences between wizards of the coast and lss and basically yeah you go for it michael LSS is Legend Story Studios, just uh, the the creators of Flesh and Blood or the company that makes Flesh and Blood. And 
They are a smaller company. They're they're actually growing quite a bit. They're a lot bigger than they were when the game first launched. But I think they're still under 70 employees. I think, I don't know exactly their numbers, but it's still not a huge company. And the person that is in charge, his name is James White. And he just, he loves Flesh and Blood. He played a lot of other card games before Flesh and Blood, including Magic. And was like, I want to make thing. I want to make a great game. I want to take the best parts of Magic, which is in his eyes, I would say are a strong organized play system and meeting together in person to play great games of a card game. And he took that and it's like, I want to make flesh and blood about that. And he cares a lot about the game. He cares a lot about the players. Um, You see him whenever something like you see him on Twitter, even engaging with the community, whenever something exciting happens, he's like, I can't remember what hero it was, but they want to, they won some smaller tournament and he's like, great job to whoever won the tournament. And I'm like, that that's really cool. He cares about, the game he cares about the community wizards of the coast i would say does not feel that way at all it just feels like a big big corporation that just wants your money and with all the products they've put out recently it's hard to really give them much credit for being something else there's definitely like people in wizards of the coast that care a lot and that's something that's like gonna happen anytime that there's people working hard to make a great game but the big corporate publicly owned wizards of the coast is just trying to milk every penny they can. And like, it doesn't feel like they care about the the players that are playing the game. Yeah. And I think that was a large focus behind why a large company like that was just okay. Just killing their pro tour for a while, really putting a huge de-emphasis on the competitive scene. And I think the competitive scene is just largely just carried by star city games at this point. I don't, I think they were called magic cons for a while, but I don't even know if those like really happen anymore, really. Uh, maybe a little bit here or there, but I don't really remember so, a lot of them happening recently. Yeah, they, they kind of disappeared during COVID, but they are, there are, there is a competitive magic scene again. They've brought back, I think they're called regional championships now that I think they qualify you for like the, maybe a pro tour. I'm not exactly sure what it's called now, but they, they did bring even, even back when they were supporting it, they kept changing the name. It was like mythic championship and stuff. But um, I think it is better now, but in my opinion, I think flesh and blood's organized play is what is what magic system used to be, where you would do well at tournaments. You get invites to more events. You get to play in pro tours and you could, travel the world playing Magic the Gathering, going to four pro tours across the world a year. And if you did well, then you would keep qualifying and basically get a stay in the, I think they called it the pro players club where you got these points to stay in the system. I don't know. You earn points, you earn pro points and you got to keep going to tournaments. Flesh and Blood doesn't have that exact same system. Yeah. But they have ELO. <laughs> but a lot now. of the invites... <laughs> Are I, I I don't know if Elo will last forever. I think there's some issues with the system that they are finding and experiencing now. But it, it does have that where it has multiple pro tours and the world championship. Um, we've been to Europe a few times. We've been they've been in just Europe and North America so far. But I expect we're going to get a pro tour level event in Asia soon, maybe in Japan. We'll see. But I think that's that's really something that. 
magic doesn't seem like like wizards of the coast didn't really care about that it's like something that they just got rid of they were like we're just done with this it's not working and we're done with it and this it's a big central part of what flesh and blood is about like you look at their website um each year and actually how we got into it was we saw their one million dollar organized play announcement for 2023 and that's when we started 2022 yeah and that's when we started in 2021 we're like wow this is really cool and then we saw there was a calling that was two hours away from us and a calling is basically a grand prix in flesh and blood lingo uh like two hours away from us and we went to it and it was a great event and then we were hooked from there and i for a while i really missed traveling to magic grand prix level events and they just were gone they weren't happening anymore and flesh and blood is doing a great job at running many tournaments of that quality and that size. Yeah. Well, maybe not size. They're a little smaller still, but like. Well, now this year they're up to $1.5 million uh, in total prize pool for the year. So that they've increased from when we even started. And speaking of just copying old magic systems over to make them uh, awesome again, there's a team magic cup or team team world team cup or not team magic cup, but there's a team cup at the championship this year in flesh and blood. Did you see that? I did. I did. They don't have a lot of information about it yet, but it, it did seem cool. Yeah, yeah. dude. Uh, I will say that's a similarity between Flesh and Blood and, and Magic the Gathering that I don't have listed here. But uh, Michael's mid on them. I love team tournaments in both of those. Team sealed, <laughs> team unified, constructed. It's great because you just get to put Michael Hamilton on your team and then you don't have to worry about winning anymore. He just does all the winning for you. It's sick, dude. I love team tournaments between the two. You get all the highs. You all win together. You all lose together. If somebody done a lot gets... of losing together. <laughs> we got second. <laughs> We got second in Flesh and Blood. Our track history in Flesh and Blood is pretty damn good, Michael. Uh, Better than it was in Magic, that's for sure. Well, I'm not registering Jace the Mind Sculptor Bonfire, the damn Blood Moon decks. <laughs> uh, that was a good deck. Anyway. No, it wasn't. That was horrible. <laughs> uh, yeah. Games are sweet to fun and to play together. And I'm looking forward to seeing if there's ever going to be like uh, Flesh and Blood Unified class constructed team tournament because that'd be really interesting like where do you put your three copies of sink below where do you put your three copies of command and conquer who gets your final spring tunic <laughs> that's a big decision that's yeah. sick who gets your crown of providence oh man so i i, I do think somebody uh, make this format happen i want to play who what what hero are you taking in our team michael oh i don't know yet because i think i i really think team unified constructed is really really cool for that tournament and then the results of the event don't have any like repercussions afterwards because it's like oh why was he playing this deck well because he wanted to leave these cards for the other decks this is the best deck that was left over with the cards that are left and that's i I think that's a really fun puzzle to do for individual events but not super relevant for the meta long term but i would love to do a team unified constructed tournament that'd be great that'd be a great time well Hopefully it happens one day. Wink, wink, some tournament <laughs> organizer out there in the world. Uh, I guess being back on schedule, though, uh, let, do you want to talk about the just skills overall, just the, like, the qualities between the card game players that are similar and different between Match Gathering and Flesh and Blood? Yeah, yeah, let's go for it. So the first one that I have as a skill that's similar is uh, results-oriented thinking. 
uh, basically in both games, you want to take the results of what happened and that's what you should make all your future decisions on, on what you should do from there. Like if you took a line and you won the game, you should keep doing that line. And if you took a line (laughs) and you didn't win the game, don't do that line ever again. So you want to really reinforce results oriented thinking, right, Michael? Yeah, yeah, it's a really important part of the game. Just, just uh, don't don't look at the decisions you're making along the way or your reasons for making the decisions. Just black and white. Did the decision work? Was it correct? No, that's, that's all I can roll. That's all I can roll with it. So, a lot of the time, you're going to make like it's like a risk assessment thing where you want to make the play that'll win you the the highest percent of the time, or win you the game the highest percent of the time, or give you the most equity in the game. And sometimes. Um, you'll make a play that you think is the correct play because you have maybe maybe you take a line that loses if they drew a defense reaction in their in their hand and they have one defection defense reaction left in their deck and they had 20 cards left that you hadn't seen in their deck so that's roughly a one in five that they drew the defense reaction that can happen and you should try to calculate and take risks like that in flesh and blood and similarly in magic you want to always just like make the play that you think will give you the best chance of winning maybe you can take a risk, a risky line that if they draw a land, you'll probably be able to kill them over two turns. But if they draw a spell, you might lose. But maybe you're in a spot where if you take another line, you're only like 10% to win. And that's if you draw two spells and they draw, or you draw a specific spell or something. I, I don't know. It gets kind of tricky, but basically you always just want to figure out what your best chance of winning is and take the line that will give you that best chance. And sometimes you're going to lose when you do that. And that doesn't mean it was a wrong decision when you lose. And that kind of holds true between both games. Yeah. And a good way to figure out whether or not you're making good decisions in card games in both Magic the Gathering and Flesh and Blood is to surround yourself with people who are better than you or just in general, make friends with people in the community and try to get better together or play together. It's just a really good habit and skill that you need to have in just card games. Life, I guess, in general is... Make sure that you are not trying to figure everything out all on your own, that you're collaborating with different people, learning. There's always something to be learned from everybody in the community and all the best players. Um, And I don't mean best in just like skill. I just mean like best in terms of like good for the community and uh, do that. So it's definitely a skill that carries over between both games. And it was something I was really bad with at in Magic the Gathering actually for a long time. You just wanted to do your own thing. I always wanted to be the best player in the room. Uh, And especially at my LGS, I basically, I, looking back on it, I was a big fish in a small pond. I was just, I could easily win all my Friday night magics easily. I haven't lost a Friday night magic in a month. Of course, I'm going to crush this Grand Prix and I go and go to the Grand Prix. And it's like, huh, how do I crush Friday night magics when I can't win at a Grand Prix? And it took years literal years for me to like get over myself and just like start really learning and having a a process that wasn't so self-contained that makes sense i got the quickly learned that i was not as good as my friday night magic results showed when i was playing on magic online and i'd go like two three and three two in every league and i'm like no it wasn't leagues it was four round dailies actually back in the day but four round dailies and then I was like, huh, I got a lot to learn still. But That's fair. yeah, I think jumping back to your point, I do think in general, you can always learn a lot from other people. Even like you said, try to surround yourself with better players. I think like 
also kind of keep your ego in check. Even if you may be the best player, there's still a lot that you can learn from other people around you and you're not going to know everything. And other people have different skill sets than you and can bring different things to the table. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the best skill sets that you bring to the table and one of the most positive benefits to knowing you is math. You're really good at that's math. One, that's one of the po- most positive benefits to knowing me is math. Mm-hmm. You're you're like a <laughs> perfect human calculator, Michael Hamilton. Uh, okay. <laughs> so, but math is an important skill between both games. Would you would you would you agree? Yeah, definitely. Um, that's why you're good it, at both games. You're good at math. I I, I actually think math was a smaller part of my magic success than flesh and blood because especially the types of decks I played where I'm just like trying to like stall and control and gain life and never actually win the game. Just don't lose the game, <laughs> which again, probably isn't a big thing now in magic, which is sad. I love blue white control decks with very few win conditions. Um, in flesh and blood, a lot of the time you're trying to assign a value to each of your cards and the different ways you can use it. You can actually assign a numerical value to it because let's say I, atta- I have a card that attacks for four or it blocks for two. I'm getting two more points of value if I'm able to attack with this card instead of block with it. And similarly, um, if your opponent has a card that attacks for four, but it has an effect that if it hits you, it draws a card, maybe now it's worth it to block with two of those two block cards instead of sending a four power attack because your opponent's going to get a whole extra card if you don't block it. And you have to do a lot of calculations in Flesh and Blood to determine like what is the most efficient line. And also assess your role in a matchup too maybe you're maybe yeah it might be better to block out that card in terms of value but maybe your opponent's just trying to set up a really big thing and they're not actually trying to kill you with damage they're trying to set up a big combo that's going to do 40 damage anyway so at that time maybe you just don't want to block and you want to say no blocks and just hit them back even and let them just draw the card um so math is a big part of the decisions you make but it's not like the end-all be-all and similarly in magic like you should do the math to say hey if i attack with my board and they block with all their optimal blocks how much damage is it going to go through? Oh, 11. You're at 11. I should attack with everything. <laughs> and then even further than that in magic, there's a lot of situations where it's like a two turn lethal, where maybe you attack with everything. Your opponent gets to eat your two, two, but it's still right because it's going to put them in lethal range. If they don't draw a creature that you just kill them the next turn by attacking with everything. Sure. And there's a lot of math that takes place in both games. I think part of why I liked limited in magic so much was because there was a lot of math in making those decisions. Whereas, and constructed there's sequencing math and there's sequencing decisions but it is definitely it was often simplified to i have creatures you don't because one person's playing a controlling deck yeah because that's the style of deck you played but if you didn't play that style of deck it was a lot of well if i attack you with these creatures and then but if you have the removal spell like think more to towards the limited planes that are constructed i think combat math matters a lot right where oh you're winning the race by attacking me in the fly with this flyer over the next two turns but i so i need to do either stop that flyer or generate extra points of value on the ground in order to overcome like this race total so i think combat math and that kind of uh, long-term thinking and decision planning is similar between the two games. I think one fringe similarity is also bluffing. I think it was, I always enjoyed attacking my random vanilla creature into my opponent's bomb in the minute. And just like, if they block my guy, just goes to the graveyard, but you could have a pump spell and then they'll lose their bomb. And 
you can also bluff like attack reactions or defense reactions in flesh and blood, which are cards you play on the combat chain to buff your attack or give you extra defense later in the turn and kind of kind of get some extra value there by making those bluff plays. The amount of times I have seen you play Command and Conquer with one floating tunic up and just confidently just be like, oh yeah, whatever. And then you just, your opponent like overblocks and you just have a fate for seeing that you Arsenal. It's like, hmm. <laughs> I, I have nice. won at least two games because of that. <laughs> so yeah, p- bluffing is is cool. I was trying to think of skills that don't carry over, like what's like a unique skill to magic that doesn't apply to flesh and blood. But I do have a skill that's unique to flesh and blood that doesn't really apply to magic, and it's pitch stacking. And and flesh and blood. So when you use a card as a resource you put it in the pitch zone and you get that many resources, but you only get them for that turn. So then it goes to the bottom of your deck. That means over a long enough span, you'll know you'll draw that card and then with the next card you pitch and then the next card you pitch and the next card you pitch. So you can actually set up game plans where you can say, okay, I know I pitched this card that's going to make a lot of resources and then this card that needs a lot of resources to attack and then this card that can then also use those resources to buff that attack and then this defense card that is going to allow me to block out for the turn so I can make sure I attack. And now I have this four-card stack. I'm going to draw these four cards together eventually, and I'm going to win the game. And there is nothing like that in Match of the Gathering. I guess maybe like opting, but even or scrying, I should say. But it, it never gets to that point because in Match of the Gathering, you don't go through your whole deck. It's very like decks. You just don't see every card in your deck. You'll maybe see like a six of it a tenth of it most games uh but More than in, a tenth. depends on what That's format you're playing cards. right oh sure <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh even in edh you should see more than 10 cards over the course of the game yeah that's fair um but in flesh and blood then you're going to see every card in your deck and you're going to go through multiple cycles of your deck where that's just not a thing in magic gathering yeah i, th- I actually think one skill that's kind of that's kind of there's a lot of in both games is deck building, but flesh and blood your deck building decisions feel more impactful sometimes because every game that you have a specific card in your deck, you're probably going to draw in more than half of the games you play because you're going to see more than half of your deck in most games. Um, a lot of games you'll see your whole deck and then see the cards you pitch again, so more than your whole deck, and that's that's really cool. Whereas in Magic. I put a card in my sideboard or had a bomb that was like the reason I played a color and just not seen it in a whole two out of three because uh, I guess that's another big difference is magic is generally played in two out of three and flesh and blood's best of one. But even despite that, I still feel like flesh and blood matches are lower variance in magic matches. Absolutely. And to that end, if you think about it uh, in flesh and blood, then this was like a magic rule that's not a rule but if you're a competitive player i'm about to say this and your mind's going to explode it is right in flesh and blood to sometimes play more than the minimum deck total so minimum deck sizes are 30 cards in limited and 60 cards in classic instructed and sometimes it's right to play 35 cards in your limited deck or 70 cards in your classic instructed deck not it's probably not as right as people do it a lot of the time it's probably done a little bit too often but it is Mm -hmm. still correct in situations where it was basically never correct to do that in flesh and blood or magic gathering it was never correct to do in magic gathering 
Yeah, yeah, that's that's true. I think the main reason you do it in Flesh and Blood is basically because you're going through so many of the cards in your deck, you can frequently run out of cards in your deck, and that's called fatigue in Flesh and Blood. It's something that happens probably... I guess it depends a lot on the heroes, but I would say it's more than 5% of the time that games come down to that. And like, you know what hero you're playing, you know what your deck looks like, you know what your opponent's hero is. And that can kind of give you some idea of the game is at risk of going to fatigue. And because of that, sometimes it is correct to play extra cards. Yeah, but I remember the first time somebody even talked about playing extra cards in their deck, my initial reaction was like, no, never, What? No, play the minimum. That way you're more likely to see your, your good cards. You only want to see your good cards. You don't want to see the bad cards, but it's like sometimes you just you just need the cards. Yep. And I think that's kind of like what what I was saying about you saying the matchup and get to choose how many cards you, you play. In Flesh and Blood, you do all of your sideboarding before the game. So you get to see your opponent's hero, you see your hero, you see who goes first or second based on the die roll of whether you go first or second, which is much more balanced in Flesh and Blood than Magic, but anyway um you do all your sideboarding at that point and in both games it's really important to have a game plan based on what your opponent's doing but you have a lot of that information before you make any choices in flesh and blood you see their hero and then you make your sideboarding decisions and then there's no mulligans in flesh and blood so magic one thing that really bothered me was i draw my opening hand and you make mulligan decisions which very much decide whether you're going to win or lose the game based on not knowing what your opponent's deck is and it's like, man, I have two removal spells um, and a good threat. If this is an aggressive creature deck, I'm in great shape. If it's like a mid-range creature deck, I'm in great shape. If it's like a slow controlling deck with like removal spells for my threats or ways to answer my threat and not things that die to these two removal spells I have, I can never win basically if I keep this hand. And that's a frustrating element of magic that Flesh and Blood doesn't really have. You just make your decision after you see their hero. So you get to have full information of what their game plan or not their entire game plan, but like what game plans they are capable of. And you can make or sideboarding decisions based on that. Yeah. But to that credit though, I think this is the last thing I'll go into before we start wrapping things up. It is way harder to cheat in flesh and blood than, than it is in magic, the gathering because magic, the gathering was infamous for, well, I'm just going to palm this perfect seven card hand. And then I have summer bloom amulet Titan on turn one. Oh, look at that. I won three GPs before I get caught doing this cheat. And, oh, I'm going to shuffle my opponent's deck to make it so that they're always going to draw seven lands. Oh, look at that. They can't play the game. I've won because I've manipulated the top cards of their deck in such a way that they just can't win now. And I just think those kinds of deck manipulation things since you are having more fluid dynamic gameplay in flesh and blood with the pitching and drawing matter way less and it gives up those kinds of cheating opportunities less room to exist in the game yeah i, I do want to say this is not a challenge please do not come try to cheat in flesh and blood <laughs> but i i wouldn't argue with you i i do think like You do shuffle your opponent's deck in Flesh and Blood whenever they present it. You can pick it up and shuffle it. But like in a world where you were stacking horrible hands for them, it isn't necessarily going to decide the game the way it would in Magic. Yeah. And just like there's no cheating an extra land into play. There's not like, oh, I played an extra land. Did you play a land this turn when you go after his combat? Oh, I can't remember. I, I don't I don't think I did. There's none of that. There's not like, oh, how'd you have this extra card? Oh, I don't know. It's very obvious to know if your opponent has the right amount of cards in their hand because either they have four, and if they have more than four, they're cheating. 
it's like or four in the arsenal and it's like there's it's really easy to keep track of whether or not your opponent's drawing extra cards like that it just gives like i think the opportunities to cheat in flesh and blood do exist obviously because it's a ultimately a game that's not hard-coded in real life physics or anything like that <laughs> but uh the overall room for it is significantly lower in the game i would say yeah, we we have still had some cheating scandals. But. Sure, like I said, it's not it's not zero percent, but I think it is much better than in Magic, and I don't think the levels of cheating could ever get to be nearly as bad as some of the things that I've seen in Magic: The Gathering over the years. Especially just really given the general changes in culture, because in Magic: The Gathering, all the time too. Like I remember there was this Magic documentary, and one of the pro players on it said, "Oh yeah, cheating in Magic was a lot like considered like falling in basketball. If nobody called it, it wasn't a big deal." And it's like. Could you imagine that being the like an attitude that people have in card games in 2024? Like that is not the way we view like card game ethics today. Yeah. Huh. But that's how I, the original nineties pro tours worked. I am very glad that, that is not how card games are. I feel like I would be much less interested in playing card games if that was how it worked. <laughs> Fair <laughs> not enough. Not a cheating and catching cheating, not a skill that I uh, want to devote me- mental space to fair enough <laughs> any like happier playing. thoughts you want to end the episode on then michael i love flesh and blood this game's great the new set's great come play flesh and blood leave magic behind it's fine you can still play it a little bit but flesh and blood's great yeah i still have some magic i still have some jumpstarty i still we still play some magic the gathering we play jumpstart and yeah, yeah we have some fun I with st- it from time to time I still watch an LSVQ video every now and then. Yeah. I still watched Reduke win a Pro Tour last year. You beat up the Boggles, right? Yeah, because it was like the inverse of the world championship that he lost back in the day. For Back in the, for when I was a young boy, he lost a world <laughs> championship on Boggles, and then he beat the Boggles deck in a matchup that like, he should have been dead or something like that. I don't know. It was yeah. sweet. I watched it. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Well, the next time you are learning the great game of flesh and blood, always remember, mind your manners. Bye.